Game Cool Books, Episode 17, Like Riding the Bear. This is on Chapter 12, The Lost Boy, in Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass. The action in Chapters 12 and 13 is continuous. Chapter 12 is the shortest yet, a mere ten pages. Puts it in a tie with the other shortest chapter in the book, penultimate Chapter 22, Betrayal. But we'll follow our procedure of treating each one on its own, so as to better understand the overall structure of the story through a close reading of each constituent part. It seems clear that the effect of such a short chapter, interrupted in the midst of the action, will be to produce an urge within the reader to read on, to leap over the cliffhanger ending and see what happens next. We'll resist that urge, or rather, we'll bow to the necessary limits on our time, and look just at chapter 12 today. As always, there's plenty to discuss there. The title, The Lost Boy, should ring a bell. Within the text, we've seen a number of candidates for that epithet, notably Lyra's best friend Roger, the kitchen boy, but also Tony Macarios and Billy Costa, all from chapter 3. There's also an unmistakable allusion to another children's classic, J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, Though it began as a storybook and stage play, most of Pullman's audience would likely owe their familiarity with the characters and general plot of Peter Pan to its place in popular culture, thanks to adaptations by Disney, both animated films and uh, live-action Hook. Disney's recasting of mythic images in iconic forms, not just Tinkerbell, but also Jiminy Cricket, may well have something to tell us about Pullman's own process of borrowing or outright stealing and refashioning materials into compelling new forms. But to stick to Peter Pan as literature for now, Pullman does seem to be acquainted with it firsthand, and to have thought about it in the course of crafting his own narrative. There's an interview with Nicholas Tucker, available at Lit Hub and I think on some other sites as well title there is, I'm quite against a sentimental vision of childhood. Pullman says, I have never wanted to extirpate innocence. I don't want to thrust the facts of life on children of four or five. What I'm against in a quite visceral, loathing way is the sentimental vision of childhood you get in books written in the so-called golden age of children's literature. Peter Pan, who thinks it's better always to stay a child. Some of A.A. A. Milne's verses, I can't bear them. They make me sick. Children don't want to be children. They want to be grown up. The games they play are about being adult. Recalling my own adolescence and encountering sexuality and intellectual incitement was all part of an extraordinarily wonderful, glorious awakening. The whole universe began to sing. So when you get people like C.S. Lewis in the Narnia books lamenting the fact that children have to grow up, it makes me very angry. Well, to return to the Golden Compass, that central theme of growing up and how this is reflected in the relationship between Lyra and her demon will continue to play out in this brief chapter. We begin where we did last time with Lyra reading the alethiometer. Contrary to what took place when she found out the location of the bear's armor on her own, kept it to herself, 
though somehow Lee Scoresby seemed to know that she knew. Perhaps he'd heard stories of her wondrous abilities. The famous Lyra, he greets her. This time, John Fobb begins by asking Lyra if she can see well enough to read. The moon itself had long set. The light from the aurora was brighter than moonlight, but it was inconstant. However, Lyra's eyes were keen, and she fumbled inside her furs and tugged out the black velvet bag. Yes, I can see all right, she said. But I know where most of the symbols are by now anyway. What shall I ask it, Lord Fa? I want to know more about how they're defending this place, Bolvanger. Without coming out and saying it, clearly he's implying that he has a request for her to read. This allows her to ask him politely what she should ask. As Tom Shippey describes in his read of Beowulf and other Nordic sagas, this kind of implicature helps everyone concerned save face. It also moves the story along in a more interesting fashion, I think, as it progresses according to the nature of the characters, their natures as expressed in their speech together. Like Tolkien, who in another scholar, Michael Drought's phrase, creates whole worlds from single words, filling out iconic mythic images with appropriate stories, whether it be from the line, in a hole in a ground there lived a hobbit, or starting from the strangely evocative name Arendil in an old English poem. In so doing, he also restores to the everyday something of the wondrous meaning that we would otherwise overlook. Pullman similarly focuses our attention on the series of symbolic images seen darkly and helps us to think consciously about what we're doing by reading through our attention on Lyra as a reader. The images she chooses this time to ask John Fa's question are the helmet, the griffin, and the crucible. The key images in this chapter, aside from this opening moment of her reading by the light of the aurora, will be the bear ride and the encounter in the fish house. As Lyra says, she knows where most of the images are without seeing them at this point. We uh, might think we similarly have Pullman's story and themes down pat, but no matter how many times I read, I find something new, and moreover, I still feel anew the emotions his story evokes. In previous examples with Father Quorum and Dr. Lincelius, Lyra's reading was being tested. But John Fawes is a practical question, not a test. Similarly, we here are reading simply to learn what happens, not for any external test. Like Lyra, we can be content not to know the particulars at first. Indeed, finding out is going to be part of the enjoyment. But to know in a more overarching way, that a meaning is coming, that is, to trust that the story will deliver. As is described here, she felt her mind settle into the right meanings like a complicated diagram in three dimensions. At once the needle began to swing round, back, round and on further, like a bee dancing its message to the hive. She watched it calmly, content not to know at first, but to know that a meaning was coming and then it began to clear. She let it dance on until it was certain. It's like the witch's demon said, Lord Fa. There's a company of Tartars guarding the station, 
and they got wires all around it. They don't really expect to be attacked. That's what the symbol reader says. But Lord Fa, what child? It's a telling me something else. In the next valley, there's a village by a lake where the folk are troubled by a ghost. Between the 3D image and the bee doing its honey dance, here, oddly enough, the alethiometer answers with two messages, seemingly, giving not just the answer to John Fa's question about Bolvanger, but also the additional information about a ghost. That's something else that it's telling her, like the PS at the end of the answer about Dr. Lancelius's question that let Lyra know that he was testing her. And it does seem like people can usually tell when you're asking them a question you already have an answer in your mind for, and that you're really asking something else, just as we're generally able to pick up on other sorts of implicatures in our interactions with one another. As Lyra will point out, it's still more reminiscent of the way that the chameleon symbol came up and proved important in the episode with the spy flies. She doesn't want to make the same mistake again, if not fully taking account of the alethiometer's message. And her stubbornness here seems reinforced by the instrument itself reiterating its admonition. John Fa shook his head impatiently and said, That don't matter now. There's bound to be spirits of all kinds among these forests. Tell me again about them Tartars. How many, for instance? What are they armed with? Lyra dutifully asked and reported the answer. That caused a stir among the old Egyptians who'd campaigned before. The Sibirsk regiments have wolf demons, said one. John Foss said, I never met fiercer. We shall have to fight like tigers and consult the bear. He's a shrewd warrior, that one. Lyra was impatient and said, But Lord Fa, this ghost, I think it's the ghost of one of the kids. Well, even if it is, Lyra, I don't know what anyone could do about it. So, if, as the goose demon says, part of what surrounds Bolvanger and guards it from approach is also hatred and fear, then perhaps it is the case that the alethiometer, in telling them about this ghostly presence, is simply answering John Fa's question all along in a way that neither he nor Lyra fully understand. So as John Fa talks to the aeronaut about their prospects, at last the Tartars might not remain just a red herring. Meanwhile, Lyra goes to consult the bear. Their talk is structured around their contrasting knowledge, abilities, and status. Though he's only passed through this area once, presumably when he was at his nadir, first coming to Trollsund, Yorick knows that there is indeed a village over the ridge. Then, without bragging, he draws a distinction between the relative distances he and Lyra are able to cover. It's not far for him. But unlike a socially adept human, he impassively forces Lyra to come out and ask what she wants. Bear said nothing. He was sitting up like a human, his great paws folded in his lap, his dark eyes looking into hers down the length of his muzzle. He knew she wanted something, 
Pantalaimon spoke. Can you take us there and catch up with the sledges later on? I could, but I have given my word to Lord Fa to obey him, not anyone else. If I get his permission, said Lyra, then yes. She turned and ran back through the snow. She tells Yorick again about the symbol reader, though he isn't likely to have forgotten it since it was responsible for pointing him to his armor. She also acknowledges John Fa's perspective, knowing that it's important to push on according to the witch demon's directions. And who knows better John Fa's leadership than Yorick, who at this point has pledged his service to the Egyptians' campaign. But Lyra insists that following the alethiometer's guidance is still more necessary because, as she says, they may know now where they're taking the kids, but they still have to find out what the gobblers are really doing. So she stops short of requesting his help, and Pan asks for her, as before he pulled her towards him. In dealing with Egyptian leaders, since Yorick has discharged his debt to Lyra by sparing the soldier and now, like Lee Scoresby, is under obligation of contract to Lord Fa, Lyra is less reticent. She implores, and implores Fardacorum, remember the chameleon, and he responds with a sigh. So, it's Lee to the rescue again. There was a silence. Fardacorum sighed. John Fa was frowning. His mouth inside the fur hood was set grimly. But before he could speak, the aeronaut put in. Lord Fa, if Yorick Birneson takes the little girl, she'll be as safe as if she was here with us. All bears are true, but I've known Yorick for years, and nothing under the sky will make him break his word. Give him the charge to take care of her, and he'll do it, make no mistake. As for speed, he can lope for hours without tiring. Lyra piles on promises of her own, not only to come back right away, but to keep from giving away any secrets. As we'll see later in The Subtle Knife, this is not entirely within her ability to prevent. Even here, surely the arrival of a girl and a bear will cause talk in any village, just as they caused a stir in Trollicent on their way out of it. Ultimately, though, John Fah accedes. In the roping, we saw his delegation of authority for planning and organizing the expedition. And here, we see him exercise that same political art, providing a model for how to go about seeking knowledge within the limits on freedom established by a just and responsive overarching order. He even questions the alethiometer's authority, which seems prudent. But Lyra is sure, she says, to his question, that symbol reader ain't playing the fool with you. She says it never does, Lord Fa, and I don't think it could. Without lying, then, if perhaps without telling everything she read in the alethiometer, or at least not trying terribly hard to talk through her guess about what it might mean, Lyra finds herself setting off with Yorick at a tangent from the line of the sleds. Tony Costa gave her a strip of dried seal meat to chew, and with Pantalaimon as a mouse inside her hood, 
Lara clambered onto the great bear's back, gripping his fur with her mittens and his narrow muscular back between her knees. His fur was wondrously thick, and the sense of immense power she felt was overwhelming. As if she weighed nothing at all, he turned and loped away in a long, swinging run up toward the ridge and into the low trees. It took some time before she was used to the movement, and then she felt a wild exhilaration. She was riding a bear, and the aurora was swaying above them in golden arcs and loops, and all around was the bitter arctic cold and the immense silence of the north. Almost more than a dream come true, because she hadn't actually imagined doing this, and she only gets to, thanks to the alethiometer telling her something just beyond what she can actually understand to read. Now, the symbolic quality of this endeavor is spelled out further for us by the narrator, who, as usual, partly shares and partly observes Lyra's perspective. He says, Lyra wanted to talk to the bear, and if he had been human, she would already be on familiar terms with him, but he was so strange and wild and cold that she was shy, almost for the first time in her life. So as he loped along, his great legs swinging tirelessly, she sat with the movement and said nothing. Perhaps he preferred that anyway, she thought. She must seem a little prattling cub, only just past babyhood in the eyes of an armored bear. She had seldom considered herself before, and found the experience interesting but uncomfortable. Very like riding the bear, in fact. York Birneson was pacing swiftly, moving back, sorry, moving both legs on one side of his body at the same time and rocking from side to side in a steady, powerful rhythm. She found she couldn't just sit. She had to ride actively. So in this instance, the narrator observes Lyra catching sight of herself from the imagined perspective of the bear, and as she imagines how she must look to him, Lyra abstracts from this to the activity of self-consciousness and to the feeling of shyness that she's experiencing almost for the first time, we're told. We might imagine other likely candidates from earlier, maybe when she had her stare down with Kaisa, the witch demon, or at her first meeting with Lord Fa, or when the scholars couldn't help laughing at her anger at being dressed up before Lord Asriel, and when she was caught sight of by Roger. She makes the poetic leap of associating riding the bear with this activity of self-conscious awareness. The setting for this feat of imaginative self-awareness is quite different from any she's been in before, characterized most of all by its immense silence and notable for the euphony of that phrase itself. With that, it's great darkness and cold, all these negative conditions, conditions of emptiness and thus possibility, within which she stays actively poised, keeping her balance figuratively and literally. The echoes of her restraint in the previous chapter are reinforced by verbal and imagistic echoes of having Yorick tear through the brambles and snagging bushes as if they were cobwebs. Just 
as she had imagined him being able to tear through the fence that separated them. But something else is moving in this immensity of snow and night. When she could see... Sorry, Lyra raised her eyes and had to wipe them with the inside of her wrist, for she was so cold that tears were blurring them. When she could see clearly, she gasped at the sight of the sky. The aurora had faded to a pallid, trembling glimmer, but the stars were bright as diamonds, and across the great, dark, diamond-scattered vault, hundreds upon hundreds of tiny black shapes were flying out of the east and south toward the north. Are they birds? she said. They are witches, said the bear. Like the intimations of mysterious and important information that she reads in the darkness from the alethiometer, the black shapes of the witches, just visible against the stars shining like bright diamonds, suggest the answer to some question we haven't yet thought of asking. Yorick's guess is that they are flying to war, but even he has never seen so many. He forbears conjecturing as to the nature of that war. But his implication is that the witches may well be allied with Lyra and the Egyptians' enemies, the Magisterium. Do you know any witches, Yorick? I have served some, and fought some, too. This is a sight to frighten Lord Fa. If they are flying to the aid of your enemies, you should all be afraid. Lord Fa wouldn't be frightened. You ain't afraid, are you? Not yet. When I am, I shall master the fear. But we had better tell Lord Fa about the witches, because the men might not have seen them. Perhaps because he does not know for sure, perhaps because he still does not care enough about the outcome of their expedition, Yorick is not afraid of the unprecedented sight. He hints that he does feel fear, just that it's not just that he's immune to it, but that when he does, he will master it. So already Lyra has more information than when she set out to discover the truth about the alethiometer's strange message. They agree to tell Lord Fa about the witches. At this point, we might feel the nagging memory of that monkey-like shape glimpsed by Pan at the tail end of the previous chapter. But whether he has told Lyra about it already or not, we never hear. So they go on, and as when she saw the aurora for the first time, her vision soon splinters again with tears of cold. The village and its frozen lake. Here, since Yorick has sworn to obey her, he asks Lyra what to do. What do you want to do? The bear asked. Lyra slipped off his back and found it hard to stand. Her face was stiff with cold and her legs were shaky, but she clung to his fur and stamped until she felt stronger. There's a child or ghost or something down in that village, she said, or maybe near it. I don't know for certain. I want to go and find him and bring him back to Lord Fa and the others if I can. I thought he was a ghost, but the symbol reader might be telling me something I can't understand. If he is outside, said the bear, he had better have some shelter. I don't think he's dead, said Lyra, but she was far from sure. The alethiometer had indicated something uncanny and unnatural, which was alarming. But who was she? Lord Asriel's daughter. 
And who is under her command? A mighty bear. How could she possibly show any fear? Continuing the theme of negations and contraries, we get the descriptors uncanny and unnatural, and then a sequence of rhetorical questions. The root of canny, I think, is related to ken, as in something within one's ken, or in this case, beyond one's ken, beyond what one knows. The witch's demon was described as uncanny, I think. Unnatural strikes still deeper. As blank and cold as this northern landscape is, it is still perfectly natural in the root sense of following its course of generation through the period of death, or at least dormancy, which predominates in the region. It will nevertheless come back to life, be reborn. At stake in confronting something unnatural is one's sense of the natural, of what one's nature is which tends to be precisely that which is unexamined and taken for granted beneath the level of articulating it. To begin to confront what is uncanny and unnatural, Lyra begins by more emphatically calling herself forth with respect to her own nativity. She's Lord Asriel's daughter. And riding a bear, as we saw, carries with it a sense of self-knowledge, though it's still new and exhilarating. Further natural senses are activated at their approach, the dogs and the reindeer responding. By the light through the windows, Lyra imagines once more how she must look to the astonished observers. The ominous water continues to draw her own attention. She notes the mounds of boats, sounding a little like ship burials. Lyra is alarmed by her first interaction with one of the villagers as he comes out brandishing a rifle. So she stands between him and the bear. And she's conscious how she told Yorick he would not need his armor. But the man is much more afraid of them. And the concern that he might accidentally fire in his agitation proves unfounded and provides a slight glimmer of humor in the episode. For the first time, we hear a foreign language spoken, with Yorick fortunately able there to interpret it for us. Lyra skillfully uses the words the man provides to find out what she needs to know. The man spoke in words she couldn't understand. Yorick uh, Birneson replied in the same language, and the man gave a little moan of fear. He thinks we are devils, Yorick told Lyra. What shall I say? Tell him we're not devils, but we've got friends who are, and we're looking for just a child, a strange child. Tell him that. We're reminded again of Tony Costa's tales of spirits wandering the earth, which Lord Fa seemed to think was what was behind the alethiometer's strange message as well. And this conversation puts Lyra and Yorick in that same uncanny category. And she's willing to remain there as long as it accomplishes her mission. So with the authority born of the man's fear, she has Yorick chastise him for mistreating the uh, 
the child. Then they go down to the shore of the frozen lake. They come to the door of the fish house. Not knocking, not knowing what to say, feeling foolish. Lyra's in a similar position to when she had approached the bear, though she's not quite so paralyzed by her anxiety. If anything, her sense that York is watching and judging her helps her to emulate him, mastering her fear as he spoke of mastering his. She and the narrator think back to the time she played the trick on the skulls with the demon's coins, for now, too, it is Pan who is terrified, seemingly worse than he was then. Oh, it was so dark now. She should have brought a lantern. There was no choice. In any way, she didn't want the bear to see her being afraid. He had spoken of mastering his fear. That was what she'd have to do. She lifted the strap of reindeer hide holding the latch in place and tugged hard against the frost binding the door shut. It opened with a snap. She had to kick aside the snow piled against the foot of the door before she could pull it open, and Pantalaimon was no help, running back and forth in his ermine shape, a white shadow over the white ground, uttering little frightened sounds. Pan, for God's sake, she said, be a bat. Go and look for me. But he wouldn't, and he wouldn't speak either. She had never seen him like this except once, when she and Roger in the crypt at Jordan had moved the demon coins into the wrong skulls. He was even more frightened than she was. As for Yorick Birneson, he was lying in the snow nearby, watching in silence. Come out, Lyra said as loud as she dared. Come out. Not a sound came in answer. She pulled the door a little wider and Pantalaimon leaped into her arms, pushing and pushing at her in his cat form and said, Go away. Don't stay here. Oh, Lyra, go now. Turn back. So, a white shadow over the white ground. Besides trying to blend in with the blank page of the snow, or to vanish into unsubstantiability like a shadow, it's emphasized that Pan won't speak. His inarticulate fear expresses that part of herself that Lyra feels she must master. Through a certain story that she's telling herself about who she is and who she wants to be. It's not all that different, maybe, from the attempts of the priest in Trollison to conjure the spirit out of Yorick's armor. Uh, and at last she calls out to the unseen presence in the fish house. That's when Pan does speak up, taking the same cat form he did in the critical moments of the last chapter, pushing at her in that cat form, telling her to turn back. At this point in the story, there's a beat of rest. It comes unexpectedly, although almost as if in answer to Lyra's thought about the lantern, an old man from the village comes carrying a lantern, and he puts in his news to go with what they learned from the other man with the gun. He spoke, and Yorick Birneson said, he says that it's, he says that's, Sorry. He says that it's not the only child of that kind. He's seen others in the forest. Sometimes they die quickly. Sometimes they don't die. This one is tough, he thinks. 
but it would better be better for him if he died. That last bit sounds almost as if York is inferring something. Uh, and we might think again of what's going on really when Lyra interprets what she reads from the alethiometer and then tells it to other people. As that's sort of what York is doing by interpreting this language that he can understand and she can't. Anyway, it's only when she thanks the old man for giving them his lantern that Lyra realizes he brought it to them for that purpose. Something between helpful and rubbernecking, the ambiguous old man becomes another onlooker. As swiftly the tension is ratcheted back up. Lyra thought suddenly, what if the child is Roger? And she prayed with all her force that it wouldn't be. Pantalimon was clinging to her, and ermine again, his little claws hooked deep into her anarch. She lifted the lantern high and took a step into the shed, and then she saw what it was that the oblation board was doing and what was the nature of the sacrifice the children were having to make. The little boy was huddled against the wood-drying rack where hung row upon row of gutted fish, all as stiff as boards. He was clutching a piece of fish to him as Lyra was clutching Pantalaimon, with her left hand hard against her heart, but that was all he had, a piece of dried fish, because he had no demon at all. The gobblers had cut it away, and that was intercision, and this was a severed child. So there's actually another sentence that does that double break of uh, semicolons, which is something we noticed when she was looking at the alethiometer in the previous chapter. Um, she uh, thinks suddenly of Roger. She prays with all her force. To go back to that for a minute, and the old man with the lantern, Lyra's sudden urge to pray combined with that might have a literary precursor in the Gerard Manley Hopkins poem, The Lantern Out of Doors. Maybe. But maybe a likelier explanation for this odd scene is just that we need a light to see what we're about to discover. As for her prayer, it's just one of the more overt instances of many where we'll see that religion is not reducible to the church. The prayer that it not be her friend seems like a natural response to this overwhelming challenge. It even seems to play a role in Lyra mastering her fear here. Lyra's gone to seek, and now she finds. And what she finds is the answer to that, or the translation, if you like, to that Orwellian term, intercision, that Dr. Lancelius had for what's happened to the children. We also hear, again, severed child. That we heard first in the question that was put during Lord Asriel's demonstration of photograms back in the retiring room and it caused a, a silence to fall. Besides bringing these moments together, intercision, the severed child, by the way, Lord Asriel's answer to that query will make sense soon once we reach Bullbanger. The other one is sacrifice. That's what the scholar at the party called the children taken by the gobblers when he was trying to impress the journalist translating the oblate root of oblation. It also means offering, but Lyra remembers the more gruesome translation when she has her interview with Lord Boreal. 
and once he calls them sacrifices, he demurs. But the term there, nature of the sacrifice, is arresting too, given the weight placed on the word nature in these chapters, and on the concept. These chapters continue the exploration of human nature that was begun with the extremes and foils of witches and bears. Still more powerful than these, though, is the parallel between Lyra and her demon, and the boy and his fish. The tableau echoes strangely with the moment early in the subtle knife when Lyra and Will first come face to face. She doesn't think that Will has a demon. She recognizes her own expression in his face. And that's a motif that'll carry through the rest of the series. Here, Lyra has come seeking Tony without knowing quite what she was seeking. But clearly, as evidenced by her prayer, she intuited it clear enough. And Tony, for his part, only seems to know, or can only think of, one thing. But he lacks the strength to seek it. As when they were listening to Father Coram's story, Lyra and Pan's hearts were beating together. Here she clutches Pan to her heart. She's backed up by the bear, by the lantern bringer, by the Egyptians, and she is reflected or inverted in the way Tony, as we find out it's Tony Macarios, is clutching his piece of fish against him and against a backdrop of more gutted fish. For more about the fish itself, which is still more strongly emphasized in the next chapter, we'll hold off until next week. It's a highly charged symbol, with much more to be said about it. The same goes for the idea of separation, which has a long shadow in both esoteric and orthodox traditions of religion. For now, it's time for recess. Apologies again for the week entry at the end of chapter 11. Spurred on by my reading of the essays in His Dark Materials Illuminated, I am working on a more thorough bibliography and reviews of the scholarship that's out there. If you know of anyone doing work that might be relevant, let me know. But let's say, let's say that was indoor recess last week, since we were tardy on the past couple of episodes. I've tried to make up for it by releasing some more videos and another conversation episode as well. So check those out. And to try to get back on track, I'm also going to get back to the imaginary video game adaptation now. To that end, let's imagine it this way. Whereas in Chapter 11, you were meant to marvel at Yorick, very much like you do the Aurora and the Witch's Demon. Now you get to have him in your party, where that awe and admiration dependent on having to chase him and intercede with him and wondering why he dived into the sea and looking to see where he was once the sleds were moving, this companionship means that you, the player, get to control his movements when Lyra is riding on his back. With her, you get to feel the exhilaration of romping over the ridge, flinging snow and obstacles aside. For a change, once you persuade John Fa with Lee's help and move away from the dogs and sleds, there will be no ambient music, only the silence, aside from York's steady progress up over the slope.
which will sound muffled as the virus uh, bundled up. And then after running for a while, he'll uh, pause and retaking control of Lyra. The first thing you'll have to do is wipe the tears from her eyes to be able to look up into the sky. The same thing will happen when you come to the village. And again, you'll be nearly paralyzed then, but slowly Lyra's movements will regain their full range. A few sounds will come back too, the dogs, the reindeer, and a soft town musical theme, variations on the trollicend, and maybe some more from another that you'll faintly hear in it, the, the Tony Macarius theme. Telling the frightened man that you're devils will cause him to run away without telling you where the ghost child is. But you can probably guess easily enough. The fish house will be ominously off by itself beside the frozen lake, the mounded boats like barrows. I think if you choose to dig under one of those mounded boats, you should probably find some kind of treasure there. Still, if you don't find it soon on your own, the fish house that is, the old man with the lantern will appear to lead you there. And either way, he'll lend you his lantern before Lyra opens the door. You'll lose control of Pan at this point, just like when you were playing with the skulls, or like when he was pulling at the link, pulling apart as far as you dared, here, pulling at the frozen door with Pan scooped up in your arms but struggling to get free, push you back. And when Lyra prays, the prayer will look something, look like something between reading the alethiometer and a dialogue with Pan to Lyman. You'll have a few options about what to pray for, exactly. But shortly after, chapter will abruptly end with the sight of the child in the fish house. Yeah, that's where we'll pick up next time. Until then. <laughs>